0: Hi, my name is Cecilia Punar, and welcome to this episode of Brave New Women. All around the world, there are amazing, ordinary women doing extraordinary things. Brave New Women is about giving those women a platform and a voice, and it's about changing the way that women are perceived, and it's a way of inspiring all of us to do the things that we've always wanted to do. I'm sitting down today with Dr. Sonia Marshall. And Sonia is, she lives in, uh, the, on the Sunshine Coast in, in Queensland, in the northeast of Australia. And she has a PhD in environmental management. And I was put into contact with Sonia by Rosalie Dillon-Sinclair, who has also been on the, uh, who I've also interviewed for the podcast. And the reason that Rosalie put me in contact with Sonia is because she, both. Both of them have have daughters with cystic fibrosis, and Sonia has done some extraordinary work on cystic fibrosis. So, Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Celia. It's really nice to meet you. Mm, Absolutely, same same for me. Now, Sonia, can you just perhaps if we could just start with um, your background? Where did you grow up? What was your family like? Um, What was your childhood like?
1: yeah, it was pretty amazing, very unique and different. I grew up on a remote cattle station in far north Queensland, um, which was a very special place, and it's now a national park, which is wonderful because we can still go back and visit it. Um, and I guess I grew up there until I was about fifteen years old, and I was riding horses and off in the bush. And it was special because it gave me a lot of resilience and self confidence. To you know, it's. I guess I could achieve all these things. I could drive a car when I was seven years old, and you know, <laughs> wow, it was really different. Yeah, it was great.
0: And um, you, um, you then moved to the Sunshine Coast. What was your what was your move from? Uh...
1: Yeah, I then my family when our cattle station became a national park. My family came down to southeast Queensland and bought a smaller farm. And I went to a real school for the first time because we were so remote. I did, you know, like school of the air. My mum was my teacher uh, until I only had three years of high school left. So I went to a real school with other students, and that was a a huge culture shock, let me put it that way.
0: (laughs) What was what was difficult about that?
1: The other people. (laughs) I was I was used to living with my family. I have two younger brothers and that was pretty much us, our closest neighbours were, you know, 100 kilometres away. So Gosh. it was really strange to be in a school full of, you know, it was only small really. It was 800 students, but um, the bells ringing and changing classrooms and different teachers for different subjects. I was very self-directed in my learning. Um, so, yeah, huge culture shock. I pretty much just put my
0: head down and just got to the end of high school so I could get to university. hmm so you got to university and then studied. What did you study at university? Um,
1: a Bachelor of Applied Science in Natural Systems and Wildlife Management. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I went and did my PhD, so. Okay, okay. And then you you got married and had children and. Um, I did. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I've um, been now, unfortunately, um, having a child with cystic fibrosis definitely takes a toll on marriages. Um, Yeah so I I got married and um, I think we were together probably about seven years before we had our first child Evie who's uh, about to turn 15 and uh, neither myself or my ex-husband realized that we were carriers for the genetic condition cystic fibrosis and um, I didn't really know anything was wrong until probably about 24 hours before she was born uh, when the, the doctor said to me this is really unusual because she was in a transverse lie position which is um you know I was really I was 37 weeks pregnant and she was sideways I guess instead of you know straight up and down like baby should be and the doctor said to me that sort of indicates that there's something physically wrong and uh, we're going to keep a close eye on you and if uh, your waters break, then you need to come straight in. And uh, and uh, that's what happened. And I had an emergency caesarean. And um, yeah. as soon as he was born, she, yeah, she couldn't breathe and <sighs> had a very distended abdomen and her limbs were really skinny. Like she just, she didn't look like a well
0: baby and, they, and she was just sort of rushed off really. Mm-hmm. So, so 37, 37 yeah. weeks. How how many months is that? Ah,
1: uh,
0: it's
1: nearly nearly nine months.
0: It's, it's nearly term. Okay, so she was born at term. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. nearly, yeah. She
0: wasn't mm-hmm. premature, just a little early. Mm-hmm. And how yeah, did you how been, did you how did you feel when she when she was born and when you saw her? Um,
1: it, it was a bit. It was all just a shock to the system. I think I was a bit sort of numb, if that makes sense. Um, I was really concerned. Um, I knew something, I think the, you know, the, our hospital teams over here are so wonderful and they were all being very calm and trying to reassure me, but, you know, as a, even as a first time 32nd mum, you know, something's just not right. And, um, so yeah, I was pretty concerned and I, I didn't see her, um, for quite some, you know, for a few hours. You know, I didn't get to hold her or anything like that because she was taken straight off. They had to get her breathing. And um, the first time I saw her, she was in the special care unit for babies and she had, you know, cannulas and tubes out of her everywhere. And she was hooked up to, you know, in a crib with hooked up to all these machines. And so it was just, yeah, it was kind of really difficult to know whether I should be seriously concerned or not or you know, it was just a, a whir of emotions going around. I think it must have been pretty distressing. I would imagine. Uh, yeah. I look back now. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. Mm. And I kept saying to the doctors, "You must know what's wrong with her." And they kept saying to me, "We think we do, but we have to wait for test results." So, um, and then that was quite quite a
0: wait. <laughs> so, when did they, When did you get the test results?
1: We didn't, they got her to a point where we could take her home um, pretty quickly, actually. Um, So she probably came home just maybe a couple of weeks after she was born. Um, And then we got a phone call uh, five weeks after she was born um, saying that her newborn heel prick test had um, come back positive for cystic fibrosis.
0: Mm.
1: So I had no idea what it was. Absolutely no idea. Never heard of it.
0: And how did, you, how did you feel when you got that news?
1: I, well, the name cystic fibrosis, I thought it was something to do with a muscular condition. Um, and apart from her distended abdomen and the difficulty, I could clearly see that she was having breathing as a, as a baby. Um, I was very watchful of her to make sure she, you know, she was still breathing at night. Um, apart from that, I... I I said to the doctor, oh, it's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with her muscles, it's her breathing. <laughs>
0: mm.
1: And um, it tried to explain to me what it was and said, oh, you know, it's okay, we can manage it. And and so I felt a bit calmer, made the mistake that everybody does. I, I got off the phone and I Googled it, mm. <laughs> worst to ever do. And um, I could see that it had a life expectancy attached to it. And it was an incredibly serious chronic illness and it was lifelong with treatments that only really treated the symptoms and not the cause. So it was, I describe it as like, I guess, being hit by a cement truck. That's what wow. I felt like.
0: Mm.
1: Pretty hard. Yeah. Mm.
0: Mm. And what is the life and, expectancy um, for people with cystic fibrosis?
1: Um, when it changes every few years because treatment and medication um, gets better and better and so... When Evie was born, it was 35 years. So um, if I was born with cystic fibrosis, I would have been lucky to make it to 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really increased over time. Um, babies who are born today, um, it's a lot longer. I have to look at the latest figure, but I think it could be up near 50. So it, it's really mm-hmm. in head and leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. But in saying that, and we'll probably get onto this in a minute, um, I believe that Evie's life expectancy is a is a lot longer than 35 years now. So mm-hmm. it's very been very
0: And So what so so you heard about you found out that she had cystic fibrosis, you googled it. And then Yeah. And then um, what was was there were there things that you needed to be doing with her? Um, what was the treatment? What was the
1: Yeah. So we do um we had to go uh, to get that confirmed, that diagnosis confirmed. And um, we the Sunshine Coast, where where we live, is about an hour and a half's drive from um, the state of Queensland's major hospital, which is in Brisbane, for children. And it's such a complex condition that it's difficult for regional hospitals to really treat it. Um, so we went down to Brisbane and she had a um Uh, further testing down there, and they confirmed that, yep, she had cystic fibrosis. So then we underwent a week training at the hospital, Um, so eight hours a day for a week, and learning how to to care for her. Um, And that was all about um, how to do airway clearance because, you know, the condition affects the lungs. It's thick, sticky buildup of mucus in the lungs. So we needed to learn how to do physiotherapy on her to move all that mucus out. Um, we had to learn about her diet because her pancreas produces enzymes, but there's so much mucus in her system and on her pancreas that they can't actually move across to her stomach to, to, um, digest her food. Mm-hmm. So she has a really, she's so lucky, high fat, high protein, high carb diet. So she <laughs> didn't eat as much as never put on weight. <laughs> One of the bonuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, all about the medications and um, I guess just how to deal with having a child with CF. So it was pretty intensive.
0: Hmm. And did you um, did you go back to work after she was born?
1: Yeah, that was a really tough time. My um, Unfortunately, my ex-husband um, already suffered from a little bit of mental health, but after Evie was born, he, you know, it was a real shock for both of us. Um and he really spiraled into depression, not as badly as he did down the track. Um, but yeah, he he just couldn't get off the couch basically for about seven months. Um and he was um he was a he's a carpenter. And so if he didn't work, he didn't get paid. And I was lucky enough to have a um a casual job at that point in time, but a, a contract um with a with our local university. And so I went back to work three weeks after Evie was born. And um, unfortunately, my husband, he also didn't really have the um, capacity at that point to really care for um, Evie either. So my parents and family kind of stepped in and and I'm so grateful for their help. They really helped us out and, um, you know, we all worked towards everybody getting back on their feet.
0: (laughs) Wow. So you you were working. You've had yeah. a three-year-old baby with cystic fibrosis and you had a husband oh, yeah. on the sofa with depression baby. and a newborn baby. Mm-hmm. And it's hard enough just having yeah. a newborn baby, but all that combined, Yeah, wow. In full time, yeah. And working full An express- time. And
1: yeah, it was pretty crazy, <laughs> but wow. it got crazier. yeah yeah we can yeah. laugh about it now <laughs> <laughs> that which does not kill me makes me stronger <laughs>
0: mm. so what was the what so, was the crazier that came after that
1: uh uh-huh. well I guess we sort of got on our feet a bit better back you know much better than what we were um and I continued to work and um, my ex-husband sort of got himself back to work which was really good um and then I guess one of the things that we thought about quite a lot was at that, and and look, this is people will judge me on this and judge my ex husband maybe, but um, when you're in this situation, you have to make some really hard decisions, and some of them are very ethical, and I have no judgment to anybody who makes the decisions that they make because I've been there and you just have to make those decisions based on the information you have at the time and what's right for you and your family. Um, so we decided we'd really like to have a second child, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is we'd call that crazy. Um, but we both had siblings and we adore our siblings and we just felt it was really important for Evie, um, our daughter was CF, to to have that opportunity in life, you know, to try and give her a life that was as normal as possible. Um, and, you know, we wanted to have more children and and um, and so we started to look at how we could do that because there was going to be, now that we knew that we were both carriers for cystic fibrosis, there was a one in four chance of every pregnancy that the child would be born with cystic fibrosis. Oh gosh. So... Is what led to the super crazy. <laughs> um, so we sort of started looking into it, and we found that we could do um, IVF, and what what they could actually do was um, to test the embryos for cystic fibrosis and um, only implant those that were free of cystic fibrosis. Um, so we had gone through a whole process to research it. It was incredibly expensive um, at the time because it wasn't. Um, here in Australia, we have sort of if if you're normal if you're a infertile couple, you can get some government subsidy through Medicare to be able to to fund that um, process. But because this was um, a genetic condition, there was no government assistance. Um, you basically had to remortgage your house to be able to um, afford it. Can you tell and me how much
0: it, how much it actually cost?
1: Yeah, look, it depends how many cycles you were going to go through. And I, we talked to a lot of people who'd been through it and some people were successful in the first few cycles and some people were two to $300,000 down the track and still going. Wow. Um, so the chances of actually falling pregnant um, was, I think it was about 15%, I'm trying to word this properly, but the chances of actually falling pregnant was far less than an infertile couple falling pregnant, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. the the chance of it actually working were a lot lower, and so we were sort of you know, I guess weighing that up. Um, and we're actually sitting in the waiting room to start the first cycle, and we both looked at each other and just went, "Don't feel like this is right," and we got up and walked out. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I know, I know. Call it crazy, but um, it wasn't. It wasn't. So then I fell pregnant naturally, and um, that was when you fall pregnant naturally. If you, there's plenty of families with more than one child with cystic fibrosis, and I absolutely admire, admire those people. But I think the thing that was on our minds was the cross infection issue. So two people with cystic fibrosis shouldn't be in contact with each other because they can have bacterial infections in their lungs and they can infect each other, not someone without CF, but just each other, Um, and it can actually cancel out their, you know, we we could have had two kids with CF and their life expectancies could have been a lot shorter because there was two of them Mm. um, and they could cross-infect that. And then there's, you know, it's pretty intensive. When Evie was little, she spent a fair bit of time in hospital and when she goes to hospital, it's for two to three weeks and we're down in Brisbane, you know, away from home and it's it's tricky to manage. Um, so I fell pregnant naturally and the option if you did that, if you wanted to know if, you, if your unborn child had CF was to have, a, um, I guess, like an amniocetase, like a, you know, a biopsy of the placenta um, at 12 weeks in the pregnancy. And so we decided we would go through that process and I did that, and unfortunately, the second pregnancy I had, the the um, fetus had cystic fibrosis. Oh, gosh.
0: Um,
1: that's actually when the serious crazy hit because, um, and you'd think you'd know a person when, you, when you're when you married to them for <laughs> kind of, you know, 10, 10 years or so, but um, my ex-husband was um, very pro-termination, and I was very against it. I. You know, I don't judge anybody else for their decisions, but that's just personally how I felt because I looked at Evie and she was this beautiful little three-year-old at that point in time, and she was amazing. And you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around um, not having another child just because they had CF. I felt it was discrimination, I guess. Um, but my ex-husband um, was pretty felt pretty strongly the other way, and you know, that's how we felt, and so. It was a lot of – it was a very difficult time and we really only had probably 24 hours to make a decision. Um, and it was – I've never been through something so intense in all my life and I kind of realised that if I didn't choose to terminate the pregnancy that my marriage would probably be over. Um, and so I, I went against what I wanted to do and I um, went through with the termination. So oh gosh. Yeah. That was really hard. Uh, it's probably mm. the darkest in my life, to be honest with you. Mm. And I look back now. I, I went through a lot of, um, I guess I, I sought support and help after that to be able to cope with it. Um, I look back now and think, well, that's what I did. That was the decision I made at the time. Don't. I beat myself up for a long time over it. Um, but I've let it go. That's that's what happened. I can't change it. Um, But what it did do was cause a lot of difficulties between my husband and I and, um, you know, the marriage started to really break down at that point because we sort of realised that we had very opposing values and viewpoints. Um, He, unfortunately, um, mental health is a horrible thing. spiraled back into very severe depression this time. Um, And he he doesn't mind me saying this. We're we're good friends now. he chose to sort of self-medicate, I guess, and he um, became, he, nearly an alcohol well, an alcoholic, mm.
0: um,
1: and he was also um, using drugs, and it was just because he wanted to escape his life. I guess. That was his and coping mechanism. It was, yeah. Look, I don't blame him. It's mm. it was horrible, and um, that was really difficult because. Um, It was a slow process. um, After that, it it didn't just happen overnight, you know. Um, And he was okay for a while, Um, but before I get to the point where that all sort of fell apart, um, we decided we'd get straight back on the horse and try to have another child again. Like I said, it's it's no judgment to anybody. It was what we decided at the time, and um, so I fell pregnant naturally again and um, went through the same process again. And this time, um, the the, um, unborn baby didn't have cystic, fib- cystic fibrosis, but was a carrier. So that was pretty cool. And, and, um, yeah. and my daughter's now 11 years old, about to turn 12 in March. And I call her, um, my little miracle. Mm. <laughs> She's pretty, you know, <laughs> mm. um, so privileged and lucky to have her. And, um, but unfortunately, the process for my ex-husband sort of, at the time she was sort of, um, one-year-old, it, it didn't really help him. He still was having a lot of trouble coping. He was still had some addictions, and um, it just got to a point where it just really wasn't, you know, I had two kids. One was cystic fibrosis. He was a mess. He was um, not in a place where he was able to help himself. I tried to support him. I couldn't, um, and it was just better that we just went our separate ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you are if you were working full-time with two children, you know, a newborn, an older daughter with cystic fibrosis and a husband who you were also having to care with, I mean, I can imagine that you just, when there's a point where you just can't do it all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and still dealing with the grief. When you have a, a, a you know, like I said, when Evie was diagnosed, it was like being hit with a cement truck and really for the, First five years, I kind of look back now and think well, it was crazy making any decisions back then because the grief that you feel is—you think you're okay at the time, but you're actually not. um You still grieve, like even now, nearly fifteen years later, I, I still have a a grief process that sort of goes up and down. But back then, it's so raw,
0: mm.
1: and um, so yeah, so there was my own, and, and losing—you know—going through that termination was still. Very raw back then, so yeah, it was it was tricky times, <laughs> really. Tricky. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, more than tricky, um, I mean, just really. Yeah, yeah,
1: very stressful.
0: Very stressful. So, very um, distressing.
1: So I've been a solo mum for ten years now.
0: Wow. wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, and my ex-husband, the girl's dad, he lives only half an hour away. He's um, since remarried um and doesn't have any children with his new wife she she has two children though um but he still struggles with mental health and he still does, even though we get along quite well he still doesn't feel he has the capacity to have the girls on the weekend or to care for them at all so they live with me 100% um yeah. and he sees for lunch about three that's entirely his choice it's just when he feels he can do you know cope with it um he probably sees them for a couple of hours for lunch or something maybe three or four times a year so they they really you know we're us three girls myself and Evie and Liv we're um really quite a tight little
0: unit we're a team Mm. and how's that how's that been being a single mother and and dealing with the cystic fibrosis how's that been
1: look quite um quite difficult until uh, a couple of years ago um yeah i mean you have no time for yourself i was also working full-time my ex-husband sort of um because of his mental health etc is not really able to support the kids financially either um so it's me it's 100% physical, emotional and financial. It's me for, for the two girls. And yeah, I've done all of that. I've, um, cause I kept up with my career. Uh, I got to a point when Evie was about seven years old, she became, she kind of went along okay. Uh, and then when she was about seven years old, she became pretty seriously unwell and was spending a lot of time in hospital. Again, my parents were completely amazing at, at helping me because I had, I had two kids. Um, you know, to try and look after and care for while one was in a hospital, and and I had to stay with her, but I had a you know a two or three year old to care for as well, and so we did a lot of juggling and um yeah, so she her lung function slipped pretty dramatically, and um, doctors were pretty concerned about her back then. We went through some pretty touch and go moments um, several times, and she had a lot of surgeries and yeah. That was hard. (laughs) Um, but we sort of hit a turning point with the health and we and she started to improve um and sort of gain back a bit of bit of health, which of course made it easier because you know I was trying to, I was still trying to work and I was working from the hospital and um so I maintained, I I guess at that point I went back down to when she was unwell, I went back down to working part-time. Um and I love my job and I love my career. And um, that was kind of a difficult thing to do. And it, I think when you're a single mum and everything is about your children, going to work is that escapism. Um it was for me because I didn't go out for coffee with friends. I didn't, I didn't do anything except care for my kids and go to work. That was it. And so work was, you know, working kids was my life and I loved going to work. Um so I went back down to part time and stayed like that for quite Quite a while, and that actually really helped. Evie's treatment at home got pretty intensive. She um, ended up with a a feeding tube in her tummy, which was so she'd have overnight feeds because she couldn't gain weight. Um, So she ended up being diagnosed with um, cystic fibrosis related diabetes at 10 years old. So we had another complex condition on top of a complex condition, (laughs) if that makes sense. Mm. So her every day day, we're taking about 13 hours um, and she was taking you know to put that into context she was taking about 44 tablets a day um, and she was doing probably about three hours worth of airway clearance and physiotherapy and different nebulizers to try and move the mucus out of her lungs and control the bacterial infections in her lungs she was doing insulins and um, you know we we're constantly monitoring her blood sugar levels all through the night, you know, every couple of hours um, and, you know, getting up to make sure she was all right not having a low or a high or, or whatever. Um, and then the rest of the time was spent, you know, sitting on a, on a feed pump pumping liquid food into her stomach. Uh, a lot of hospital admissions, a lot of time just at doctor's appointments and x-rays and MRIs and, you know, in and out of different
0: surgeries and,
1: yeah. It was just crazy.
0: Were you doing all this by yourself?
1: <laughs> yeah, with the help of my mum and dad. Um, but you know, my mum and dad are getting older as, you know, as we, as during that time and, and now, of course. And, um, it's very difficult to ask for help and to rely on others for support sometimes. And I felt like I was such a burden to them mm-hmm. because I was, Meant to be an adult and able to stand on my two feet, own two feet, and I couldn't. Um, And, you know, hats off to them. They're incredible parents. And they really helped as much as they could. But they also live two hours away from where I live. Mm. Um, So they couldn't be there all the time. So, yeah, a lot of it was just me. And it's difficult to maintain friendships even. So even just getting to know the neighbours, you know, was a hard thing so yeah a lot of the time it was just me doing midnight runs to the hospital or calling the ambulance or you know ending up in an emergency at two o'clock in the morning or whatever it happened to be and when it got to a point where I really couldn't cope I would ring my parents and say can you please drive down and they they always did so yeah
0: I have to say my heart my heart just goes out to you I
1: mean
0: it's a lot different now (laughs) yeah I mean I just just when you say when you say that you felt like you were a burden to your parents and um I mean if I was your mother and I could see what you were coping with, it would just um I mean my I would be doing everything I could
1: Yeah.
0: everything I could to help us.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, what courage I, think that's, I mean, it's just
1: I'm fiercely independent and always have been, and I think really that, that's was in my head. Um mm-hmm. My mum and dad never said anything to me ever that ever made me feel like I was a burden to them. They always did whatever they could, but they were aware that I was fiercely independent and part of it was me wanting to do it myself and to prove that I could do it and to be a good parent, to be two parents to my children, you know, Um, and I don't know why it's probably a bit, I always say you need a certain amount of crazy to be successful Um, and that was my certain amount of crazy at that time. And it must have been very lonely for you too. Very, very isolating. Yeah, very much so. Um, but that is also part of living with a chronic illness, I think. Um, so not only, you know, you get invited to go around to someone's house for dinner or to have a coffee and you have to, you always have to counsel because, you know, even a head cold could put Evie in hospital and, um you know somebody might have a head cold at the dinner party or you just you go you're going to go and 10 minutes before you walk out the door Eddie has you know some sort of medical issue and you have to deal with that or you end up in hospital or you know like it was just um i i was also lucky i have some good friends who understood and stuck by me and um you know I, it was just you know i'm a lucky person i think <laughs> mm.
0: Mm. And you said that things now aren't like that. So how, how's your life now?
1: Um, well, look, when Evie, back in 2016, I've read a research article. So, you know, having having this sort of background that I have, I didn't shy away from getting into medical journals. <laughs> mm. So didn't always, I don't always understand them, but I have, you know, Evie's cystic fibrosis team and her doctors are amazing at, Um, Explaining things to me, and and you know they walk into the consultation room and say, "Is it multiple choice today?" (laughs) Mm. (laughs) They know they they know they're going to get hit with questions. And we've had a very good. She's had the same team since she was born, and we have a very you know they know us, and we have a good partnership. We've always been a partner in her care. Um, I feel free to question their decisions, and they feel free to question mine um so they've helped me understand a lot of a lot of medical stuff as we've uh, as I'll call it I read a research article when she was about 10 years old about this amazing um drug um which just had a, a number as a name and how it was the first drug um to actually treat the cause of cystic fibrosis and not just the symptoms so it's being a genetic defect, it meant it, having the condition means that your cells in your body don't work properly. They have, they're supposed to have little gates on them that open and close um, to let salt in and out of the cell. Well, EVs don't have a gate. <laughs> so the salt just goes in and out, and that's the whole cause of cystic fibrosis and the thick, sticky mucus and the effects on the pancreas and the liver and the lungs and the kidneys and everything pretty much except the brain. Um so this drug actually kind of grows a gate and then oils it to make it open and close. So it's not perfect, but it's a whole lot better. It's not a cure, but it's a whole lot better. So I followed this drug and um, was first talking about it in the media in 2016 um, in our local paper, actually, and it just kind of grew from there because I thought, you know, I kind of dug my heels in at that point because I went through all this grief. I had, you know, my marriage broke down. Um, I very nearly lost my house to bankruptcy. Um, I was a huge burden on my parents. I, I couldn't have the career that I wanted to have. And I kind of dug my heels in at some point and kind of went, you know what? I'm not going to bury my daughter. I'm not going to do it. I refuse because that was the prognosis back then that I would be standing at my daughter's funeral. And I just thought, no way, this disease has taken so much from me and from her and from my younger daughter, Liv, and from my ex-husband, from my family, from my friends, not going to do it. So, <laughs> so see, I told you it took a certain certain amount of crazy. So, <laughs> so I just watched this drug and uh, it was being developed in America by a drug company called Vertex. And uh, it received several different lots of funding and it kept continuing in trials, um, eventually got to human trial phase and it went through the the three phases of uh, trials and I read the research and basically it halted the progression of the disease by 40%. Um, It added uh, in trials an average of 4.5% lung function, which doesn't sound like much but when your lung function is down at 20 or 30% and you can't have a shower by yourself 4.5% means you can have a shower by yourself it oh, means gosh. you can walk, means you can talk without being breathless so that's huge um in some cases uh, of mild cystic fibrosis related diabetes it was actually reversing the effect of that so those patients no longer had cystic fibrosis related diabetes it honestly it just had incredible results in in the research that I was reading from the trials um so I dug my heels in before then and, and I was looking for this option so I decided that this was it and this was not only going to change my life and my daughter's life but it was going to change the lives of over it's about 3,500 people in Australia with cystic fibrosis and there's different types This medication helped the most common and the most severe type of CF, which is what my daughter has. So there's about 1,300 people in Australia who could benefit from it. And so I had a chat with my daughter um, and, you know, she was a lot younger back then and we decided we'd just go for it. We'd, you know, do whatever we had to do to, to get this drug, not only for her but for anybody who could benefit. Um. So I teamed up with, um, there's some cystic fibrosis organisations um, in Australia. So I teamed up with them and approached them and uh, we sort of began the process about, probably about five years ago now, um, of strategic planning for the campaign to be able to, to get this drug. I joined campaign groups in other countries, <laughs> so Ireland, America, um, they had the drug before we did, and so I watched very closely what process they went through and what their key messages were and how they went about it. Um, I talked to people over there. The CF organisations did the same, um, and look, the CF organisation we have in CF Australia is amazing. They started a, um, a a process to be able to train anybody in the cystic fibrosis community who wanted to um, in media in how to understand health policy, um, how to basically be advocates. Um, and when I looked at what I do for a living and, um, you know, the skills that it would take to be, um, like a transformational leader in this space, I went, I've got those skills, different contexts for my career, but that's actually what, what we're going to need. And, um, So And and I had a daughter who was articulate and intelligent and, you know, bubbly and um, a bit of a, I'm so biased, I'm her mum, but a bit of a charismatic personality as lots of people with CF have because they live such tough, amazing lives. Um, And so she's a lot more mature um, mentally, I guess, than, you know, she's had to go through so much. And she really has stared death in the face, you know, she thought about what it was to not be here. So she understood herself very well and still does. Um, So the first thing we kind of had to do was train people and get them understanding how to be an advocate. And uh, then we had to decide on what our key messages would be and what tools we would use to to be effective advocates, like writing letters to politicians or protests or, you know, what
0: would would that look like? and how? Can you say, when you say when you say getting the drug, what do you? What does that actually mean? Yeah. Does that mean um, being yeah, able to a, be that it should be available for sale in Australia? Does it mean that it should be reimbursed? Does it mean what? what does it mean exactly?
1: Good question. Um, so in Australia, the process is that the drug company will make a submission to our Therapeutic Goods Association, which is a like a government bo- government body that decides whether or not they look at the clinical trial. Uh, Research, and they decide whether or not the drug is safe and effective. Um, And if it gets the yes from them, uh, then it will move on to. It depends on the cost of the drug. Um, Some drugs don't go to the next step, but this drug was costing two hundred and fifty thousand Australian dollars a year. So that's incredibly expensive
0: for one. Um, So for one person with cystic fibrosis, it would be two hundred and fifty thousand.
1: Of a small unit or something, you know, or a house in some places in Australia. Um, pretty much no one can afford that. <laughs> so, yeah. but the drug company spent years and years of developing it. There's nothing else like it, they're gonna ask that money. Um, so in this case, the drug had to go to through a process with the pharmaceutical benefits committee, who are an independent. Um, body from the government, and they are people who are incredibly intelligent doctors, pharmacists, you know, professors. Um, and they look at the evidence and they look at what the Therapeutic Goods Association said, uh, and then they decide whether the, the drug will be um, put listed on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. And the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme is basically like subsidising the the government, subsidising the cost of the drug. So instead of patients being able to buy it for $250,000 a year, they can pay a maximum of $500 a year for the drug. So the process was incredibly important um, to be able to do that so that this 1,300-odd people could actually afford to get it. Um, And look, we had cases in Australia where grandparents were selling their houses and using their superannuation to be able to fund a year of the drug because their CF grandchild was very unwell and, you know, really needed it. Um, People were doing that, not often, but it was happening. Um, So, yeah, so we decided we would um, go through the, the process of developing our campaign Strategy. um, And we had to, the cystic fibrosis community across Australia back in those days was a bit fractured, as lots of communities are. It's not, you know, it's a normal thing. They all have different ideas about what should happen and how it should be done. Um, So part of my role was to not actually make it visible that I was aligned with the CF organisation, because there was a little bit of distrust back then. you know, that's what happens with community. Um, and so I use social media quite a lot and I did all sorts of things like fly around Australia to visit different families just so I got to know them and, um, and make those connections and those networks and those friendships. And, and I did that for quite some time. And eventually we sort of got everybody or the people who were interested in being vocal advocates to be on the same page and more united because we always knew we were going to be stronger together. You know, there's always, um, you've got more weight in numbers. And so we we spent a lot of time doing that. And the drug company made their first submission to our Australian process to the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. And we're all very hopeful and myself and the CEO of Cystic Fibrosis Australia Mm -hmm. and then an adult um, a woman who had cystic fibrosis, a young woman with cystic fibrosis, who was on just a, she was on the transplant list. Lung transplants are common um, when you get to about thirty percent lung function. She was on the list. She managed to somehow get compassionate access to this drug, um, and she started taking it. The drug company funded it, and within six months her lung function was up to 50%. She could go to work, she could run, she could catch a bus, she could laugh, <laughs> you know, shower by herself. <laughs> so she it was fantastic. And she um so we went to a consumer hearing and we represented the CF community of Australia and she spoke from her perspective um on what it was like to live a life Without the drug and showed them photos, and she was a skinny little tiny thing. Um, She told a story about how she would swim in the ocean when she was unwell, and the weight of the water on her chest was too much, like she couldn't breathe. Um, But now, after taking the drug, I think she'd been on it for probably about 12 months by then, she could swim in the ocean, she could work, you know, she could do all these things. I spoke from the perspective of a mother with uh, a then 12-year-old child who was waiting for the drug um, and our CEO sort of brought our stories together. So we presented this case um, to the committee and then we waited for the results and um, they rejected it. Oh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh. On what grounds? But that was
1: pretty, yeah, um, the cost. Mm-hmm. It was too expensive. For the benefit, and we were looking at 1,300 people at a cost of $250,000 a year, and they just couldn't see that it was worth it. So, to have an expert committee tell you that your daughter's life is not worth it was devastating. Yeah. But at the same time, once I picked myself up, it made me incredibly angry. <laughs> Angry as in I wanted to fight that. Yeah, that's not right. There's a human rights issue. Everybody has the right to life-saving medication. Um, so we picked ourselves up. The drug company decided they would submit again. They went through that process. Um, by this time, we'd gathered more people on board, you know, from the CF community. People were writing to their members of parliament. They were um, in the local paper. Um, You know, they were writing letters to both the drug company, to our Federal Minister for Health, to the Pharmaceutical Benefits Committee. Um, We had more adults who were able to get compassionate access and tell their stories, uh, which is a a very powerful thing to do, being able to tell your story. Very raw thing, but a very powerful thing. Um, So we went through the process a second time and it was rejected again for the same reason. Yeah. Yeah again
0: <laughs> to the same tribunal. So I d-
1: <laughs> yeah yeah um so we did it again <laughs> drug company got their submission together again they had a little bit more data this time because they've continued trials we got even more voices on board in our campaign we had even more media um we went for it again and Third time round, it was rejected again.
0: Oh, you're joking!
1: <laughs> it was quite a fight. <laughs> I won't. Fight's the wrong word, but it was quite a journey. Um, so that was pretty hard. Three times it was rejected, and here here was my daughter. Her health was starting to go down yet again. There were people in the cystic fibrosis community, young people, that that drug could have saved. I knew several of them who passed away in that time. Um, kids, young people, it was, yeah. I yeah.
0: mean, there's no words. Well, absolute fury, I can imagine. Yeah. The fury that they would let that happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so got I just reject- refused. So it got rejected a third time? Used.
1: <laughs> yeah, it got rejected a third time uh, and... I guess it took probably about six months really for me to pull myself together. Um, Both my daughter and I were pretty, uh, I think, devastated an understatement. Um, But at the end of the day, we we refused to let that happen. While there was a drug that could change my daughter's life and the lives of 1,300 other people in this country, I wasn't going to give up and neither Mm. was my daughter. the drug company at that point um, had issued a statement saying um, that they were considering pulling out of Australia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They had actually just at that time out of France for the same reason because um, France kept rejecting them um, and they just felt like it wasn't, you know, cost them money every time they do this and time and effort. They could just go to some other country where there's more patients with CF and make their money um they were i felt that they weren't um very flexible in their negotiations i felt that our australian government weren't really trying hard enough um so this time thankfully they decided they you know it was touch and go they were thinking about pulling out but there was a whole lot of negotiations happened between cystic fibrosis australia and our our federal health minister and the drug company and they decided they'd give it one last shot um, that they would submit again. And so this time we really hammered it home. You know we we really gained momentum because this was three years' worth of campaigning and three years' worth of being in the media, and you know three years' worth of writing to politicians and to you know doing what we were doing. We'd held a protest outside Parliament House down in Canberra already before the third rejection. So we decided we'd hold another one in Sydney Um, and this time we got some really great mainstream media, so some really national, well-known TV shows um, involved in that and um, they did interviews with um, myself and my daughter and um, other parents and um, adults who were taking the drug and having benefits Um, and they did good long stories and really explained, you know, the whole thing. We got the greater Australian community on board and, you know, I'd walk down the street and people, um, this sounds so like I'm full of myself, I'm not, but my daughter and I'd walk down the street and people would know, they'd go, hey, saw you on TV. Okay. <laughs> um, where's the I can sign? Who do you want me to write to? What can I do to help? Um, and the same on social media. Social media was a fantastic tool. You know, yeah. we were doing about it and getting I always joke it actually crashed my Facebook like (laughs) you know I couldn't cope with the number of comments and likes and shares and um on the posts we were doing so we were very organized we're all volunteers we're all CF mums or dads or people who had cystic fibrosis um and we were doing all of this out of our own time but we really really got momentum and um the fourth time round um I guess we had a different federal minister for health as well, and when we spoke to him and sort of got to know his story a little bit, we were very fortunate that he understood cystic fibrosis. He had had a um, a friend as when he was a young adult pass away from CF, and um, so he 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 got it and he understood how important it was. And I think that he was absolutely instrumental um, in getting the drug subsidised. And um, so yeah, the fourth time round, we all. On the day of the um, announcement from the pharmaceutical benefits committee, we did a big video link hookup across Australia with, you know, so many CF families and um, different key stakeholders. And we had a big party on my driveway and invited all our friends over, you know, who helped. And we had, you know, I was holding press conferences before that on my veranda at my house. And so we invited all the media. We had the um some the mainstream national. TV shows doing their follow-up stories here. It was just crazy. <laughs> We're just like just a little single mum family, you know, <laughs> mm. <laughs> in a house, and <laughs> um, yeah. So it was really big. And at five o'clock, <laughs> at five o'clock on the seventeenth of August in two thousand and eighteen, it was subsidised.
0: Oh gosh, a huge emotion, just huge emotion after such a long, long,
1: long. It was like working a full time job as well as doing my part job and job as well as bringing up two kids, but we did it. (laughs) Sorry. On the seventeenth of September, just a month later, my daughter was the first one in Queensland to get the drug within six weeks, her lung function had improved by 16%. Wow. She no longer had CF-related diabetes. She hasn't been on a feeding pump for two years. She goes to school full-time. She can go to sleepovers, birthday parties. She can run. She can laugh. I work full-time. I work full-time now. I have started my career again. It's going great. Um, my younger daughter had a, now has a mother who can actually pay her attention <laughs> and attend to her needs instead of just being the quiet little one who had to sit in the corner and see her sister go through all of this. So, yeah, it was, it's, yeah, very So it's changed your life? Mm-hmm. Mm. I've sort of 1,300
0: other people. So but yeah, Sonya, it was a long journey. <laughs> I mean my it's heart great. just my heart just goes out to you and my my admiration. I mean <laughs> Thanks. being a single mum with when, two children, one who's got cystic fibrosis, working part-time, running an enormous campaign. Not only doing it once, but doing it four yeah. times.
1: Yeah. <laughs> With a lot of help, though. Yeah. You know,
0: you can't work. But still, you it were the one, you were the one, country. Was, you were the one who was spearheading it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was a few of us, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. And my daughter was right there, too. Mm. So
0: mm.
1: that's off to her. None of us are particularly public people and we, didn't really want to get on national television and tell out, tell this story, our stories. And um but you do it.
0: Mm. And we did it and it was absolutely worth it. <laughs> mm. And yeah. you and you got an award Huge. for it from the Governor General of Australia. I I
1: did. Yeah. And um I did. And I also won, oh, if this has all happened since. Um, That was partway through the campaign and then last year I was awarded the University of the Sunshine Coast, which is where I finished my PhD years ago now. Um, I was the Outstanding Alumni of the Year for that university for the work I'd done. I'm not only in my field of environmental management and sustainability, but um, in, for probably a lot of it actually, was for cystic fibrosis advocacy Um, and the organisation I work for has about 2,000 employees, and I won the outstanding, um, the CEO's outstanding employee of the year for the, for the work I'd done in the community. Um, so, because we have people in our region, you know, who, who have cystic fibrosis, and um, I'm nominated for. <laughs> this sounds so like I'm blowing my own horn, but I'm not. Totally. I'm nominated. A Queensland award which the results will be in March next year and um I just received word yesterday actually that myself and two other Sunshine Coast mums who were also part of this campaign um and we do a lot of other fundraising events and 65 kilometer runs and all sorts of other stuff besides um and we've just been uh, nominated for um, an Australia Day award um which we'll find out about in January um my daughter was the um she won for her part in it last year the Sunshine Coast Youth Citizen of the Year, and she won the Queensland um, Youth Leadership Award last year as well for her part in it. So it's really lovely to get those accolades, but honestly, it you know, you just, you
0: do it because you do it. Yeah. <laughs> Neither because you are, really so, are. you are so motivated and so angry and yeah. so determined that it's just not, I'm not going anymore. to happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly.
1: And the best part of my days or weeks is I still get messages from mums uh, with little kids with cystic fibrosis and they're eligible for this medication by the time they're two years old and they track me down on social media and send me a message and just tell me their stories and, you know, older kids or adults whose lives have been changed and it brings me to tears every time to hear that their quality of lives are so much better and that, you know, I'm in the first generation of parents who are looking at not having to bury their children. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. (laughs) That's enough, thanks. Mm. You can't ask better than that. (laughs) So probably to win awards and be nominated, but, yeah,
0: the bigger picture of that, so much more. Mm. Oh, Sonia, this has just been, I mean, talking to you has just been such, um, you have been through through so much and shown so much strength, so much resilience.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Pretty tough.
1: This yeah. is where I grew up at the
0: station, hey? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. It was my upbringing. <laughs> yeah. If you've got one message to give to, to people who are listening, what would that be?
1: So many messages, but um, gosh, my key one at the moment, I swap. Um, my key one at the moment would be trust yourself, value yourself. I'm a distinct person and that's what I ran on. I just knew it wasn't right and I knew it had to change and that was the whole point of my being involved and um you know it was a basic human right. People And the whole point of your the whole point of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It just value yourself. Mm. Use what skills you have. You're worthy. Mm.
0: <laughs> Anybody can you just gotta find it within yourself. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been has been amazing talking to you. And I I really hope that we we have a chance to speak about your work. You know, your your oh, pay, yeah, your it's paid not enough, work. It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> another time. So I'm sure it's just as worthwhile. Yeah. So thank you. It's
1: it's been lovely to meet you. And this is your podcast. Wow. Good on you. This is
0: really great. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brave New Women. On Friday, 22 January, I'll be holding a free webinar to talk about how women can stand up and speak up. There'll be two sessions, 8.30 a.m. in Paris, which is 6.30 p.m. in Sydney, and then the second session at 2.30 p.m. Paris, which is 8.30 a.m. on the U.S. East Coast. If you'd like to join us, please connect on LinkedIn or on the Brave New Women Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening.